This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Slow down the growth. That's the message that some voters in Metro Denver sent in the election earlier this month. In Lakewood and Greenwood Village, they voted in city councils that may put the brakes on growth. And Denver and Broomfield passed measures that might result in a building slowdown. We're going to sort this out with Ed Sealover, reporter for the Denver Business Journal, who just wrote about this. And welcome back to the show, Ed. Thank you for having me on, Ryan. So the city councils in Lakewood and Greenwood Village will soon have majorities that have at least raised concerns about high-density projects, so things like apartment buildings. What do you think is driving this? Well, the overall big-picture reason is that they feel like it's changing the nature of their communities. And there's a lot of things they're going to cite. These projects are going to bring higher traffic. Uh, Some say they're going to bring more crime. Uh, Some say they take away public resources by not having the same input uh, as far as property tax revenues as as single-family housing would Hmm. do. Um, But... Make no mistake, traffic is the biggest factor in here. Whenever you talk to people about growth, they will say, uh, I just can't get by on my streets anymore. In Lakewood, that's places like Union Boulevard and West Colfax Avenue that are becoming more and more congested. Uh, and while some people say, look, it's not the growth's fault, it's, it's the fault of the state for not planning for transportation infrastructure, uh, people are still saying we need to do something to slow this. And yet Lakewood and Greenwood Village are two communities that have fairly new light rail transit transit-oriented development, and so the pushback might be, but are these necessarily people who will always be in their cars if they move into big apartment buildings? And that's exactly what the city councils there said. And in Lakewood, the, the pushback against that was, yes, you know what, people might take light rail to work, but they're going to take their cars on the weekends. And they, in fact, uh, the leader of this kind of pushback against growth, Ramey Johnson, a city councilwoman out there, uh, said, look, and, and we're not even requiring apartments to be built with enough parking spaces now. So not only they clogging the streets with traffic. They're clogging the streets for parking as well. When I look at the history of a sort of anti-growth sentiment in Colorado, or at least a sentiment of slowing growth, if not outright anti-growth, I think back to the rejection of the Olympics. This was in the 1970s. I think that was a statewide vote. Mm -hmm. Do some comparing and contrasting for me. Do you think that we're seeing a similar spirit today? You're not the first person to make this comparison. Dave Kerber, who was a former mayor pro tem of Greenwood Village, who was just reelected in the recent elections on a, hey, let's cut the density that we're looking to bring into Greenwood Village platform, said the same thing, that people seem to be very excited in the business ranks. And he uses the analogy to compare it to the current push to get Amazon's second headquarters and its proposed 50,000 jobs here. People seem to be really excited in the business ranks about the economic impact, but the average Coloradan says, that's not what I'm looking for. That takes away the character of my state. Isn't Dave Kerber the same guy who thinks that people are feeling alienated by their representatives and that there could even be a kind of populist Trump element to this idea around slow growth? Absolutely. And to understand the Greenwood Village election, you have to remember that in July there was a special election held on whether to uh, increase the density of a parcel right around the light rail stop at Orchard Station. So transit-oriented development. Absolutely. That failed three to one. People did not want to see apartments and, and more density there. And, and he's saying that in addition to a number of people running on lower density platforms that won in the November election, a lot of people ran on the, you weren't listening to me. You continued to push this idea. And now I'm going to push back, thinking government isn't listening to me, hence the same spirit that got Donald Trump elected president. So the city councils in Lakewood and Greenwood Village, as we've said, will soon have majorities that have raised concerns about high-density projects. In Lakewood, 
which is really one of Colorado's largest cities, uh, there was a recent council plan to put, I think, a six-month moratorium on high-density residential. Uh, And that failed, that moratorium, by just one vote. So could that be brought back up under the new council in Lakewood? Theoretically, it could be, because that was a six to five failure. And now six people who kind of stand with that slow growth feel have the platform in Lakewood. However, Ramey Johnson, the uh, the author of that, said she doesn't want to bring that back necessarily. She wants to change the direction of the conversation. That could be just going back into the zoning code, uh, making it more difficult to do some of these high-density projects without considering the impact of them. Uh, as you look at slowing growth, you point to two other votes that might not jump out to, to most of us as slow growth votes. So there was one in Broomfield, which gives the city and county more local control over oil and gas operations, and one in Denver, where voters approved a green roofs initiative. How do they fit into this, do you think? Well, I think if you could take those with the two city council elections we've been discussing, the general theme is we like our city the way it is. Now, Uh in Broomfield, that means that the oil and gas companies that are coming in trying to build more rigs uh, are are not as welcome there. It's interesting to note they're building rigs in areas that 20 years ago were vacant fields. And now houses are moving out toward them and people who are living there not excited about this. This is their attempt to push back and say, I don't want that kind of growth. Okay, it's a different kind of building than we've been talking about. How... How the heck does the Green Roofs Initiative fit into your theory here? At Z-Level this is one This is one that made me kind of scratch my head when somebody first brought it up to me until it was explained to me um, that while this was a fairly close vote that passed this, and while the folks who were pushing this Green Roofs Initiative were largely doing it for the environmental impact and the idea of cutting the urban uh, uh, concrete factor with some green roofs, uh, that there might have been – the people that pushed it across might have been people who don't care about that so much, but just might have said, boy, I'm really tired of the developers just putting up buildings anywhere where they want in Denver, and this could slow it. And certainly that is a factor. I mean, now you're, you've got developers saying, I'm not as wild about building in a city that's going to require this. And you've got a planning department that's already been heavily criticized in a recent city audit for being too slow in its permitting process that's going to have to go back and develop a whole new process for this that can only slow it down more. Well, this is fascinating because we debated the Green Roofs Initiative on this program, and those opposed cited as one of the reasons to vote against it that it might deter developers. It could be that they were arguing uh, really um, counter to their own uh, desires there. Or at least they brought out people who might have thought about it in a different way, that Uh it was no longer just the intended. Okay, this was an off-year election, which means a low turnout. Do you think that this could be spelling something bigger Or is this just about the small minority who came out to vote? Certainly, it's tough to make big, broad picture generalizations from an off-year election. But at the same point, I I go back to Michael Gifford, who is the uh, CEO of the Associate General Contractors of Colorado, who lost one of those key Lakewood City Council races. And he said, people talk about the vocal minority, but this was a much bigger minority than I expected. And he said, they're not just vocal, they're active. And that counts for a lot more going forward. Let's talk about the flip side of preserving the small town feel of a place. If you're not building as much housing, doesn't that mean the cost of what housing there is goes up? Uh, So is this in conflict to some extent with the cries of how expensive 
it is to have a roof over your head in Metro Denver. Absolutely. I mean, this is the boulderization effect. If you put limits on it, it's only going to drive it through the roof. You, you now, say that because Boulder has protected a lot of green space as a result that's made Boulder existing. has some of these growth yeah. limitations in place. Um, not only that, but a lot of people who pointed to why this is a bad idea say, look, it's not like the growth is going to stop coming here. In fact, in Lakewood, it's been shown there are three jobs created for every new uh, resident or every new um, dwelling that's being created, meaning people are still going to drive into the city and through the city for their jobs. And that traffic isn't going to dissipate because you're now just pushing that growth out to other areas that don't have these uh, limitations if you change uh, the stance on growth in the city council. So really, you're just changing traffic patterns, not the existence of traffic, I guess. You're just pushing growth elsewhere. You're not stopping it. Okay. Where, where does that? Yeah, where does that? Where does that leave the debate? <laughs> well, that leaves the debate hanging in this precarious place. Where does it become bigger than just a city by city debate? And most people say right now it's a municipal debate because it's much easier to pass things on a local level than it is on a statewide level. In fact, Colorado made it harder to get measures on the ballot uh, through through sort of popular signature gathering. Absolutely, thanks to the 2016 constitutional amendment. That said, a man named Daniel Hayes, he's a golden activist, and he was the author of his. His city's growth limitation many years ago uh, has proposed a statewide initiative that would limit a to 1% the increase in building permits in most front-range counties if this were to pass and could be taken out statewide as well. Now, he's still got to go get signatures for this. It may or may not get on the ballot. But if it does, uh, builders especially are worried that there could be a populist undertow that could make this more attractive than it might seem at first glance. Interesting. So that could appear on the November ballot. That's his goal? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. He originally shopped it as a constitutional amendment, decided to be easier to just run it as an initiative. Do you think this will come up in the next session of the state legislature? I don't hear a lot of push for growth limitations out of legislators. Okay. Uh, so I think it's unlikely. And even if it did come up, extremely unlikely something would pass through divided houses. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. Ed Sealover is a reporter at the Denver Business Journal, and you can find some of his stories about growth and the potential for slowing growth at CPR.org. A bill in Congress would save some veterans from a fate that CPR News helped uncover. In 2015, we revealed that thousands of soldiers had been kicked out of the military after returning from Iraq and Afghanistan with brain injuries and other mental health problems. Back then, we met Staff Sergeant Eric James. He was an Army sniper in Iraq who became depressed and suicidal when he returned to Colorado's Fort Carson. It's like my mom said. She was the person I'd always call. I would call her, you know, after I'd drinking so much and it's late at night. And I'd tell her, Mom, like, I need help. Every day I wish I was dead. And yet being expelled with an other than honorable discharge can leave veterans without mental health care. That's what the bill from Congressman Mike Kaufman seeks to change. He spoke with CPR's Mike Lamp. These are veterans who served overseas, oftentimes in multiple combat tours, that were given discharges classified as other than honorable, really based on often minor misconduct. And it was a way that predominantly the United States Army used to thin its ranks in the aftermath of the buildup in Afghanistan and Iraq, where we started to draw it down and didn't need the personnel that we had at that time. And so I think it's a pretty insidious way to do it, uh, having served 21 years in the military. Well, if your bill passes, uh, as it has passed in the House, is it possible that the military or Veterans Affairs 
you know, could find another loophole to avoid being obligated for some of that treatment. No, they really could not. They would certainly have to provide it. They're providing some now, but they're only providing it on an emergency basis, and it is not required. And so what we want to do is require it in law so that this administration has to provide mental health services to include preventive and not just emergency-related mental health services. We're losing over 20 veterans a day to suicide, and I think that if we look at this population that came back and had some problems, albeit, in my view, not major problems. We do exclude those with bad conduct discharges and dishonorable discharges from the legislation, but those with this new classification of an honorable discharge, where it's for minor offenses, we have an obligation, I believe, to take care of them. So the government would be responsible for long-term mental health services for a lot of veterans. Are you confident that Congress will make the money available for decades in the future? I'm absolutely confident of this. I think this is just a basic responsibility. I don't think that, quite frankly, that these veterans, certainly most of them, should have ever been discharged in the first place under these circumstances of minor misconduct to tarnish people for their entire life, to emotionally scar them for their entire life by throwing them out of the military with an other than honorable discharge. That makes it difficult for them to even get employment. Is it possible to estimate how much it will cost to treat a lot of uh, seriously injured people, fairly young people, maybe for the rest of their lives? There is a calculation uh, that uh, the Congressional Budget Office has done. It won't be significant in the short run simply because the VA is providing some of these services. It will guarantee the services and also add preventive Uh, There's a cost, but the way the legislation is written, it's believed that with all the inefficiencies in the VA, that the VA can find the money from within its organization to provide these services. Well, the bill has passed the House. What happens now in the Senate? Well, I believe that it will pass the Senate. It is not scheduled yet for the vote, but I believe it will be scheduled sooner. I'm certainly working with my Senate colleagues to make that happen. CPR's Mike Lamb speaking with Republican Congressman Mike Kaufman, who previously served in the U.S. Army and Marine Corps. You can see our earlier reporting with NPR from Fort Carson at CPR.org. At the Thanksgiving table, as you're fighting over white meat or the dark meat, some other people are fighting over the tail. It's like rich and fatty, and if you have a turkey that's cooked really nicely and all those juices are, like, collecting at the bottom, I mean, the tail is where you're going to taste all of that. If you love dark meat, it's just, like, concentrated dark meat, essentially. You may recognize that voice. It's our own Anne-Maria Wad. Her family's actually unusual in America, savoring this part of the turkey. But Michael Carolyn from Colorado State University says other cultures consider turkey backs a delicacy. He specializes in the sociology of food. And Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So when you say the tail or the turkey back, uh, do you mean the actual like feathered part? What are we talking about here? Yeah, that's a good question. I get that a lot. I am talking about the piece of meat that the that the feathers are attached to. There's actually an oil sack there, which the birds use to preen themselves. And so essentially it it is the tail, but it's the piece of the bird which the tail is attached to. Okay. Eating an oil sack doesn't sound delicious, but uh, I know that it makes it very fatty, which can be tasty. Yes, that's right. And, you know, to that point, we eat rancid mammalian secretions in the form of cheese. We eat rocks in the form of salt and we eat fungi in the form of mushrooms. So why not turkey tails? What do they taste like to you? 
Well, I've only had it a few times, and I only recently prepared it for the first time just about two weeks ago. And when it's prepared well, um, it, it is quite delicious. It has to be finished with uh, with high heat because it is so fatty. You want to get the skin and the fat uh, crunchy. And if you can complement that crunch, say, in a stir-fry with vegetables, the two pair quite well. Huh. Uh, we have a video of you making turkey tails at CPR.org. And I, I don't think the turkeys we buy in my family— have ever had tails on them. So is it common to be able to buy a bird with the tail? No, actually, uh, in making that video that you mentioned, which we produced here at Colorado State University, it, it took quite a bit of work to actually track one down. I had called the local Whole Foods here in Fort Collins. We were told that they might have some in stock, but when we went there, they did not. And someone else that I was working with phoned all around in the nearest tails that we could locate were at a Whole Foods in Longmont, and the butcher there was processing, I believe, four birds, and he was going to throw the tails out, so he essentially just gave them to us. And so that just kind of further verifies the fact that it's, it is a difficult piece to get in a lot of locations. Yeah, especially if they just throw it out. Uh, my colleague Anne Maria Watt says that her family just leaves the tail on when they cook the bird. Um so uh, throwing out is one option for a turkey tail, but in the history of the bird, these have also been exported to other countries uh, where there's more of a market for them, I guess. Yeah, that that in and of itself is a fascinating tale. Um, <laughs> well, sorry. Uh -huh. At Whole Foods is one thing where they, in, in, in some respects, process their own birds. But when you're processing hundreds of thousands of birds annually, we, we coincidentally in the United States produce 250 million birds just in the U.S. alone. When you're processing that many and you're dealing with a product that would either get thrown away or would not get used, um, when I talked to industry insiders about this, they said that the the strategy was, well, why not try to generate a profit from this piece that would otherwise not get used? And so it began a process that dates back to the 1950s of starting to find external markets to export the tails to. And as I talk about in that piece that you referred to, Ryan, um, the Pacific Islands are one of those locations where it has gone from a quote-unquote foreign food in the 1950s to a national delicacy. Um, when I spoke to one Samoan, for instance, and asked them what they would consider to be a national delicacy, it it's not uncommon for them to maybe mention a turkey tail washed down by a cold Budweiser. So there's an interesting aspect of globalization as it relates to what we think um, is an authentic local uh, food and what's not. Interesting. So they created a market for this in Samoa. Uh, there is a high obesity rate there. Uh, as we've said, these tails are mostly fat. And um, that actually led Samoa to rethink its relationship with turkey tails. That is correct. Uh, by 2007, Samoa was consuming more than 44 pounds of turkey tails uh, per capita every year, which is actually higher than what we consume of turkey in general here in the United States. And so this did result in it being linked to a public health crisis. They also happen to have obesity rates in excess of 75%, which is just outrageous. And so in 2007, the officials grew so concerned about this that they banned the importation of turkey tails. Um, that ban was then lifted in 2013 as they tried to gain entry into the WTO. And, and as anyone who knows the WTO can attest to the fact that they don't look too kindly on people banning foods um, unless there's rig rigid 
vigorous scientific evidence to support the ban. So they were forced to lift the ban in 2013. And now Samoans can get their turkey tails from the United States yet again. Fascinating. Well, given that they're so fattening, is it a wise idea that we start eating them again stateside? Yeah, that's an excellent question. It's one thing to say that we should be consuming 44 pounds of turkey tails per capita year. And it's another thing to say maybe we should think about incorporating into our Thanksgiving uh, dinner, which would amount to maybe a half a pound of turkey tail per capita a year. So it's more along the lines of thinking about eating nose to tail and thinking about some of these knock-on effects that happen when we uh, fetishize just one piece of an animal or one cut of meat, recognizing that no animal is just one piece or one cut. And so all of those other bits that are associated with an animal have to go somewhere. And sometimes they go to places in other parts of the world and, and have uh, impacts that negatively affect public health to a significant degree. Do you think that turkey tails or turkey backs, as they're also called, could replace other fats in the Thanksgiving meal? That's certainly possible. I certainly know a lot of people that use the turkey tail and the turkey neck and the back uh, to make gravy and, and things like that. Wow. And so um, that's one aspect that that certainly could be used for. And as I showed in that video, there's other ways to eat them as well, um, just straight up. And I suppose if enough people express a desire for them at their local grocer, perhaps the throwing out of turkey tails might start to change. Yeah, yeah. And our whole attitude about what what we eat when it comes to the animal and eating the whole animal as opposed to just one part. You know, with our fascination with white meat, for instance, it has, has had these interesting knock-on effects with industrial food systems where we're breeding birds with breasts that are so big that the birds can't even walk anymore. And if they try, they literally break their legs. Um, and again, we can't breed away vital parts like heart, livers, and necks. And so just getting people to think more broadly about what pieces they eat and what they don't and what it means to not eat a particular cut when it comes to eating eating meat. Who knew a turkey tail could uh, tell us such a tale about the global food supply, Michael? <laughs> well, that's why I, I like the example, because it really does allow for entry into broader conversations about uh, the effects of our food and, uh, and to get people to think beyond just tracing food back to the farmer, which is often something we're told, you know, know your farmer. I, I suggest sometimes the, the three F's go from fork to farmer and then back out to the forks, because then you can start to understand where all, all of those parts of our foods and our animals um, uh, go to and the impacts that, that arise. Well, if you eat turkey tail, I'd love to hear about it. You can tweet me at CPR Warner. Michael, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Michael Carolyn is Associate Dean for Research in CSU's Liberal Arts School. He also writes about food and sociology, and his new book is No One Eats Alone, Food as a Social Enterprise. And there is that video of him preparing and enjoying turkey tails at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It didn't matter how much talent you had. If you were a woman in 19th century Paris making art, you were sidelined. Consider what Edward Manet said about the Impressionist painter Berthe Morisot. This woman's work is exceptional. Too bad she's not a man. 
Morizot actually managed to make a name for herself, but many other women were ignored by critics and historians. Well, their work is waiting to be rediscovered now at the Denver Art Museum in the show Her Paris, Women Artists in the Age of Impressionism. Curator of painting and sculpture, Angelica Deneo is here. And Angelica, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. What were some of the challenges women artists faced in Paris at this time? Well, um, they gathered to Paris. So certainly Paris was an important center. It was the art capital at the time. Yeah, it was like a magnet for artists. Absolutely. And it was, you know, the city where you would have the the best opportunities to show your work um, and the best uh, uh, art market. But as far as education, there was a big obstacle. And that was that they couldn't attend the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, which was the the school of fine arts, uh, which was important. Uh, It was a state funded, was a free academy, was the most prestigious place to study art. And they were not admitted until 1897. No women allowed until that point. Uh, It was fascinating. I read somewhere in the exhibition that women were banned from painting nude figures. That was illegal at the time? Help me understand that. Well, I don't know if I would call it illegal, but it was really frowned upon. And in particular, we're talking about the male nude. And this is an important point because copying after the male nude was considered essential if you wanted to become uh, um, sort of a recognized artist and therefore practice the most prestigious genre, which was history painting. And so to tell women that you couldn't paint that or that it was frowned upon meant retarding their growth to some extent. Yeah, and they couldn't, they, they weren't considered equipped to paint in those great, grand, ambitious canvases. And in fact, some critics thought they were not physically able to paint such large canvases. Oh, right. How did they respond to these obstacles? Well, they were resourceful, and uh, uh, thanks to a number of private academies that began to uh, surface at the time, such as the Académie Colarossi or Académie Julian, which was probably the most known. Were these run by women? Uh, no, it was okay. actually run by Rodolphe Julian, but it was really well attended by women artists and serious women artists, not just the society lady that wanted to sort of dabble in paint or practice a hobby. These were women that wanted to become an artist and make that their profession. So they could attend this private academies where, interestingly enough, the fee was double the one of men. Um, oh. Yeah. Well, the premise was that if you were an artist, a male, wanted to become an artist, that you will have only yourself to rely upon. But if you were a woman, the expectation was that you had some sort of support behind parents or a husband. Um, and Julian wanted to uh, sort of discourage uh, the woman that just wanted to practice art as a leisure. At the risk of pitting the sexes against each other, mm-hmm. is there something women artists tended to do better than men, something that they captured with their eye, their understanding of society, that paintings by men perhaps did not. I think there was the assumption that there were certain genres that were more in tune with their sensitivity. Children, for instance, the depiction of children. There are a lot of images of children in this exhibition at the Denver Art Museum. Yeah, and women, you know, were surrounded by children more than men. And so that was the assumption. However, I would argue that you look at uh, one of the most celebrated women women artists uh, um, that painted children, a mother and child, such as Mary Cassatt, where she never had children of her own. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, I think, assumption has to be challenged a little bit. But certainly there were genres where they um, excel, such as the intimate, I think, scenes, because the intimate world was generally uh, the one that they inhabit, uh, a more private world, more domestic I will say that Cassatt was the only name I recognized in the exhibition mm-hmm. uh, from my art history class. I mentioned uh, Bert Morizot. 
Uh, tell us just a bit about her, who Manet said was incredibly talented. Too bad, quote, she's a woman. Right. I know. Verne Morisot, it's, it's this wonderful success story in the sense that she, uh, she was born in a, in a wealthy um, a family of the haute bourgeoisie. Uh, means that she had means. She didn't have to uh, earn an income. Um, but she, she had it all. She married Eugène Manet, actually the brother of Edouard Manet okay. that you just quoted. <laughs> so no hard feelings there. Okay. Um, and she had a child. So she fulfilled the role society expected of her at the time to be a wife and to be a mother. But she also was a... Um, very active protagonist in the Impressionist movement. She was one of the founding members participating in all but one of the eight Impressionist shows. So she was really well-respected, well-admired, and uh, critically successful. There are 37 artists featured in this show, and uh, we don't have time to talk about all of them, but give me one name that perhaps fell into obscurity that you really want people to know and, and maybe describe a work that she has in this exhibition. Well, I would say that uh, I will mention Anna Anker, uh, um, a Danish artist, but with Anna the, Anker, Anna Anker, but with the caveat that it, it's probably fairly known. Uh, in Denmark. Oh. Um, I mean, actually, it is well known in Denmark and probably more known in other countries, northern countries of Europe. But I don't think it's probably uh, an artist that is extremely well known in the United States, but uh, extremely uh, skillful and leaving us this wonderful works of uh, solitary figures in an in, in an sort of indoor space. Uh, they are very poetical. And also she has in the show this small canvas of uh, three harvester walking, which is in the history section. So in among this large, ambitious history canvases, and yet this smaller work holds its own uh, as she imbues these figures with heroism, with quiet dignity, in a way that the, the small painting actually exudes this sense of monumentality. And beautiful light she captures, I think. If I remember that painting, yes, uh, I found the light breathtaking. Absolutely. That's very true. Uh, Let's go back to Mary Cassatt and uh, several works by her in the show. She was an American who moved to France and became well known for her Impressionist paintings. How did she succeed in the male-dominated art world? Because she, she really did have a level of success, I think, that is unparalleled for a woman at that time. Well, she was very determined. She has quite, I think, uh, the uh, self-assured personality. Um, so she actually traveled through Europe uh, um, to see museums. In fact, she famously declared that museums are the only teachers one needs, uh, <laughs> which we like to hear that. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, she studied at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, but she traveled through Europe and then she eventually she moved to Paris um, and she never left France. Uh, but she had, I think, a very, uh, um, a very assertive personality. She was obviously extremely talented. And she really pursued art uh, with determination. This was uh, is one of these artists that never was um, sort of uh, uh, put off track uh, by uh, um, happenings in, in her lifetime. She really pursued art with great determination and, and successfully so. Do you walk around the exhibition, Her Paris, Women Artists in the Age of Impressionism, and give some thought to the women who never made it, whose potential was unfulfilled, perhaps because they didn't have the money. It sounds like it was a pretty expensive endeavor if you wanted to have a modicum of success in this pretty sexist environment. Well, absolutely. I mean, and there are uh, works in this exhibition by artists that 
painted with great talent and then something happened in their life and they quit painting. Either they married, in the case of Edma Pontillon, who was the sister of Belle Morisot. So you have actually these two sisters with different trajectories. Uh-huh. Um, or an artist extremely talented like Marie Bracmont who um, em- embraced the Impressionist movement uh, early on, but her husband was extremely critical. He was also an artist um, and very vocal about it at a point that she just uh, quit painting. Her husband shut her down. Pretty much. Wore her out. <laughs> My goodness. Uh, does this show have a message for our time? I think, uh, from my point of view, the message is to look at a peer in art history, in this case, Paris in the 19th century, the second half of the 19th century, and trying to look at it from different angles, not be satisfied with one. You know, we often presented shows that have male artists at the center, but that was not I think the, the only Monet, perspective. The Big Monet show a few years back, for instance. Right. But that, you know, remind us of that was not the only perspective. So this is why we call this Her Paris. This is from the perspective of women artists. With, and they had an important contribution to this, uh, uh, to the art at the time. And the show, of shows that. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Angelica Donio is curator of painting and sculpture at the Denver Art Museum. Her Paris, Women Artists in the Age of Impressionism, runs through January 14th. As a little girl, Marie Greenwood was a spitfire. She craved adventure, and it helped her become Denver's first black tenured teacher. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine invited Greenwood to visit a place that helped shape her, the first school she attended in Denver, Maury Middle School. When Marie Greenwood rolls into the school, the principal greets her with a joke. You're returning a library book today for us? Is that, that would be a pretty hefty fine. I was born in 1912, so all you gotta do is make this subtraction. 105 years old next week. With eyes bright and expressive, her words sharp, witty, and warm. Oh, this is fascinating. Her son James rolls Greenwood into the old Maury gym, and her face lights up. These are no slow-cranking gears of memory. Greenwood goes back instantly, 92 years ago, a young girl in a gym outfit from 1925, a wool skirt, leggings, a white shirt and tie. But we had ropes that came down, and boy, I could really climb those ropes faster than anybody. (laughs) For one of the first times in my life, this was the one place where I felt absolutely free. In the classrooms, it was another story because there was that feeling of discrimination. But when I was here, that was it. Greenwood's world opened up in sports. She taught herself how to swim from library books and practice breathing underwater in the sink at home. Maury School had a pool. With all these girls wanting me to do everything and wanting me to swim with them, that was great. And then the principal let me know. She couldn't swim in the pool because she was black. She says the incident spurred her on. It got me out of some of that shyness and made me say, I'm going to prove that I can be the best. And from then on, that's what I did. We head into the auditorium. Greenwood doesn't remember it being this massive. And look, there's a ramp over there. Oh, this is, mm-hmm. Boy, I'm glad to see this. Good gravy. It was in this auditorium she met a group of black girls, some she stayed friends with for 70 years. 
Greenwood also reminisces about discriminatory behavior from a social studies teacher who liked to embarrass her when she didn't know an answer and never called on her when she did. Greenwood outsmarted her. I could look stupid as could be, knew the answer. She'd call on me, bingo. Or I could wave my hand, you know, had no idea what was going on. And then the teacher would ignore her, letting Greenwood save face. But the centenarian fondly remembers others, like the math teacher who helped her after school until finally... I got it. Greenwood began excelling. The teacher gave her a compliment she remembers to this day. He told me I had a mathematical mind. And you know what, she says? He was right. I'm still doing my own finances. (laughs) Just in case you forgot, she turns 105 years old next week. She's lived by all kinds of aphorisms. If you aim for the stars, you're at least you're going to hit the treetops. As a teenager, the stars were still a long way off. She wasn't allowed to play sports or join clubs. A school administrator told her not to bother with college because she'd be cleaning houses. Greenwood replied she was going to college. Then she went into the bathroom and cried. I pounded on the walls and I said, I am, I'm going to show them. And she did. Fortunately, her family moved and she enrolled in West High, where the principal didn't tolerate discrimination. That was my salvation. She graduated third in her class, won a scholarship, and went on to teacher's college. In 1935, Denver Public Schools hired her as a first grade teacher. Three years later, she was the first teacher of color to get tenure. I had two goals, keep that job and keep the door open for others to come in. She later became the first black teacher in an all-white school, raised a family, skied a lot, and camped all over the West. But Greenwood calls teaching the love of her life. And it's a love she likes to talk about. Well, you see, you get me wound up. I'm like the Energizer Bunny. I just go on and on and on and on and on. (laughs) I can't just answer your question and quit. (laughs) But Marie Greenwood also has things to do, crossword puzzles and Jeopardy games, and children to sing with at a pre-birthday celebration. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. If black people would talk to people. We would be better people all around. And if white people would talk to black... You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Last year, two Egyptian mummies were loaded onto an ambulance and taken to Children's Hospital Colorado. There, they were placed on a narrow table and given a CAT scan. It turns out scientists had gotten big parts of these mummies' stories wrong. Michelle Coons led this research. The mummies reside at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, where she works. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. This is an assumption, but uh, did you do the CAT scan so that you didn't have to unwrap the mummies? In other words, as a good way of looking inside and and safely doing it? Yes, definitely. So we don't want to unwrap the, unwrap the mummies. And so this is a good way of seeing what's inside the mummies and finding out all kinds of things about them with not disturbing them. Okay. Uh, so how close did you get to them? I mean, were you lifting them? Were you touching them? Well, yes. We When we moved them, we did have to take them off display and we took them on gurneys into the into the hospital and we lifted them into the, the CAT scan. Are they heavy? Are they tall? Describe them for me. So they're they're heavy enough. I'm both. They're, we know they're both women, and they're both about five feet. So we, they're 
You can imagine that. Yeah, not easy to move around. Until now, you have called the two mummies Rich Mummy and Poor Mummy. How did they get those names? So they were actually scanned before in the 1990s. And from those earlier scans, they realized that inside of the one that they called Rich Mummy, there were all all kinds of amulets and jewelry. And inside the one that they called the Poor Mummy, there was no wrapping. There was just wrappings and their organs were left inside. So they assumed that this meant that they were, that this was an indicator of their wealth. I see. That is to say one mummy had bling and was the rich mummy and one mummy was without bling and was the poor mummy. This is fascinating. I I know that in tombs there were often uh, you know fancy things, items, uh, artifacts placed around a mummy or a body, but they're actually mummified with objects. Yes, exactly. Huh. Okay. But now you have new information that means the rich mummy, poor mummy labels really no longer fit. What did you discover? So in addition to doing the CT scans, which uh, were so much better than the ones from the 90s, just because technology is advanced, we did a whole bunch of other um, science on the mummies, including radiocarbon dating. And this was really the key because it told us that the mummies were 500 years apart in age. And really, Really, when they were mummified, they both received typical mummification for the time period when they died. Oh. It just was – it was different. And so it wasn't really a wealth indicator. I see. It was that the methods of mummification differed. And at one period of time, you might not have been wrapped up with your belongings or something. Exactly. So the one mummy was mummified um, – about 2,900 years ago, and it was really at the height of mummification in Egypt. And so this is a time period where they would remove the organs, they would take the organs, and they would actually wrap them in bundles of linen, um, put little wax figures with them, and stuff them back inside the body so that you made sure you had your organs with you. In earlier time periods, they would put those organs in jars, but they realized this was um, not so good because people kept looting organs, and you would get You would get separated from your organs, and you needed your organs to go to the afterlife. So during this uh, 2,900 years ago, they would put your organs back in your body, and they really were concerned with making the body look really lifelike. So they would stuff the body with linens and resins and lichens and sawdust just to really make it plump you up plump you up ah, so, so that speak. you looked full exactly and w- was everybody mummified at that time or or just i mean i guess if you thought there were poor mummies it wasn't just the wealthy well that was part of the misnomer. And so if you could afford mummification, you were mummified. Um, And the more you could afford, the better. But if you couldn't afford it, you weren't necessarily mummified. So there really isn't such thing as a poor mummy, so to speak. Got it. But that meant only wealthy people got into the good spot in the afterlife, right? You could really do your best to be somewhat mummified. So, yeah. (laughs) Partial mummification going on. I want to say that these two mummies, again, uh, females, are on permanent loan from Pueblo. They were purchased in 1905 by an entrepreneur named Andrew McClelland, who was from Pueblo, and he brought them back to the States while on a trip to Egypt. Now they're at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. What else are you learning about these women's lives? Well, so we are able to learn a couple different things about their lives, mostly about their health, um, because we can look at their bones. And so we do know that they both died about 35, which is typical of the time period, a little bit depressing, but, you know, that was the typical lifespan. Um, We cannot see really any trauma on their bones themselves. They looked fairly healthy, no idea, no 
um, evidence of like arthritis or other diseases that affect the bones. Um, their teeth are really ground down. So this indicates that their diets had lots of sand in them because you can imagine it's a desert and there's lots of particles of sand. So really, really ground down teeth. Uh, let me just say that if sand were in the diet, I think I wouldn't want to live past 35. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. So we know a little bit about, you know, their 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 health in that res- in that respect. So the mummification is quite good because the bones are in good shape. Is that what I hear you saying? Yes, at least in the one mummy that we had been calling the 20 20- um, the rich mummy, which we now are calling the 2,900-year-old mummy. The other mummy, the poor mummy, or the what is 2,400-year-old mummy, the she was partially unwrapped at some point. Mm. And so the, the bones are are a little bit misshapen, but that's after her death. It, had, it didn't have anything to do with when she was alive. Can you say why they died? No. No. We can't. Maybe for, one for day. Now, exactly. Yes. <laughs> because there might be new technology, what, coming down the pike? Exactly. There might be. What would that look like? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we can get some third graders on that. How often do you have to change the story of something at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science? Because this this means all of the curation around these mummies has to change, right? Exactly. And so I don't know for other stories, so to speak, but um, this exhibit hadn't been updated in about 20 years or so. And so things not. change and science is always changing. And that's what makes it really exciting that we have new technology at our fingertips that we can use to learn new things. So I think it's it's healthy and exciting when things change. Thanks for sharing this with us. Sure thing. Michelle Coons is curator of archaeology at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And at CPR.org, you can see photos of the mummies being loaded onto that ambulance and getting a CAT scan at Children's Hospital, Colorado. Finally today, for decades, Colorado musicians Chris Daniels and Freddie Gowdy crossed paths with their respective bands, the Kings and the Freddie Henchy Band. Daniels, a blues man, always admired Gowdy, a master of funk. A few years ago, the two joined forces and started mixing musical influences. Their latest record together, Blues with Horns, Volume 1, pulls from the Memphis and New Orleans traditions of injecting blues with a horn section. Our roots have always been in getting up and getting people on the dance floor. So we wanted to kind of go just beyond the borders of straight blues with horns and kind of go into funk blues with horns with Freddie's tune. He just takes it to the next level up. It's been an amazing experience. I I love working with Freddie. It's the best version of The Kings we've ever had. And the best album The Kings have ever recorded, according to Chris Daniels. He attributes that to more focused time in the studio, sophisticated writing, and the band's maturity. And where I'm especially proud is Freddie's vocals. I've never heard him sing this well. In uh, that wonderful old uh, Bobby Blue Bland tune, uh, I Wouldn't Treat a Dog, the first verse in that... He gets really intimate. It's almost like he's he's sitting there next to you and having a conversation with you. It's it's amazing. I, I get goosebumps talking about it. When I was up, you always come around. And when I needed a friend, you could never be found.
Wouldn't Treat a Dog the Way You Treated Me, performed by Chris Daniels and the Kings with Freddie Gowdy. Their new album together is Blues with Horns, Volume 1, and it's out now. I'm Ryan Warner. We're out now. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News.